0: I really think right now we're at a global energy inflection point. Electrification of society is just accelerating. Uh, We're going to see that continue and uh, electricity demand last year hit a new record. You know, this presents a lot of opportunities for us in the electric uh, power industry, but it also presents uh, lots of challenges too.
1: Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all US investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Reel. In late February, Executives from the Edison Electric Institute briefed Wall Street analysts, bankers, investors, and other industry stakeholders on the state of the U.S. electric power industry while at NASDAQ's market site in New York City. Today's episode will feature a recap of the briefing. EEI's leadership team covered several high priority topics, including ESG, the role of new and developing carbon free technologies, electric transportation, energy group reliability, resilience, and security, federal and state regulations workforce development and diversity, equity and inclusion, financial performance and ongoing efforts to meet customer expectations and to support customers in need. You can watch the full presentation and read the prepared remarks at www.eei.org. Before we get started, I wanna let you know that registration for EEI 2023 is open. This year's Thought Leadership Forum promises to be a fitting celebration for EEI's 90th anniversary. Join industry and government leaders, technology innovators and partners, regulators, and other stakeholders as we showcase the actions and leadership of America's electric companies to deliver resilient clean energy across our economy. Again, you can visit EEI.org for more information and to register. Now, let's get to the briefing. We open with EEI President Tom Kuhn outlining the state of the
0: industry. I want to first commend our member companies who are really kind of playing a very, very vital role in maintaining our energy infrastructure in what is some very, very challenging times. Today, we are providing reliable, affordable, uh, resilient, clean electricity to hundreds of millions of customers, and, uh, and we're very, very proud of that. And I really think right now we're at a global energy inflection point. Electrification of society is just accelerating. Uh, We're going to see that continue. And uh, electricity demand last year hit a new record. You know, this presents a lot of opportunities for us in the electric uh, power industry, but it also presents uh, lots of challenges, too. But I am very, very proud that over the last two years we have worked on uh, major legislation that has passed that uh, I think is going to give us lots of new tools uh, and technologies to help do the job that we need to do in the future. And uh, last year I talked to you about the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Uh, again, this is a major piece of legislation that I think is going to help our customers and, and, our, and our nation. And we are leading on the implementation. We're leading our industry through the implementation of that important legislation. I also mentioned last year that even after that legislation, we had a lot more to do. We had a lot more to do. So we did it. We mobilized our CEOs, had hundreds of congressional visits. We had meetings at the White House and with administration officials throughout the year. We partnered with labor unions and environmental groups and business groups.
1: Tom added that the nearly $272 billion clean energy tax package included in the Inflation Reduction Act is going to deliver significant benefit for customers, help build smarter energy infrastructure, deploy more clean energy, and help our industry reduce
0: carbon emissions. So these two bills in tandem, I think will produce major customer benefits. It's gonna help us build out the uh, energy infrastructure of this country, and it's gonna help us to reduce emissions in a major way. So monumental wins for our customers and our nations. But I will say the same thing as I said last year to you, we have much more to do.
1: Next, Brian Wolf, EEI's Chief Strategy Officer and Executive Vice President of Public Policy and External Affairs, discussed EEI's efforts to advocate for permitting and siting reform. He provided an update on electric transportation and explained how electric companies are supporting customers in need.
2: We're greater than 40% now carbon-free. I think we have to think about our companies and that clean energy transition has been happening. We had a piece of legislation about 14 years ago that never passed, but we were still on that path to clean energy. Then we had a regulatory proposal that was going to get us, you know, to, to more carbon reductions, and that didn't pass, but we kept going. You know, the industry literally has been propelling itself through uh, this clean energy transition. And as Tom had mentioned, when we think about carbon emissions, the lowest that they've been and and. I think it's 40 years, while at the same time, we've got 73% more electricity being used as far as the growth of that. You know, we have to couple with what the industry's doing. And we say that 4000000000 billion, we've got a $4 billion investment in electric transportation infrastructure. That's along with the $9 billion infrastructure investment from the IJA bill so that is a lot of investment just in when we think about uh, electric transportation and what that means and then at the same time we're using 93% of all of all storage we actually set up an entire implementation two year implementation strategy so that we could make sure that our companies were going after these are these are competitive grants by, by and large so we wanted to make sure that our companies were going after these investments you know so critical when we talk about the clean energy transition and then i think we have to we we kind of switched, as Tom said. We had to; we're not finished, and we weren't finished at that point. So we we had to look at the Inflation Reduction Act and those clean energy tax credits, 272 billion dollars. And when we think about all the different areas of the clean energy transition, you have you have to think about you know what was in there for wind, what was in there for solar, what was in there with a the production tax credit, an investment tax credit, what was in there eight-year um, nuclear uh, credit. Uh, to keep our nuclear facilities up and running, uh, vital to the clean energy transition, as you all know. And I think some of the areas that we were most proud of, I think, was the normalization opt out for storage and admit that the IOUs were going to be in the driver's seat when it comes to deploying storage. So really important to us in, a, in the EV tax credit, I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but it, the EV tax credit could not be more important to spur, continue to spur the industry as far as used vehicle Vehicle tax credit, heavy and large uh, vehicle tax credits for that. Um, and we, we were seeing a lot of different uh, customer rebates uh, that were put in there. Uh, EEI is actually, we're in the process right now of developing a consumer guide, you know, a consumer guide that everyone will know what's in that legislation as soon as the Treasury gives us our guidance You know, we will complete that guide and get it out. And you'll see a lot of the awareness that we'll do with both the administration, with Congress, with the Department of Energy in order to do that work. I I mention all of that because, again, implementation. So we've been focused with DOE, the White House. We have a call on, on Wednesday with the White House with regards to hydrogen and, and what does it mean for that hydrogen credit uh, there? What does it mean for green hydrogen in the future of that market? And then also when we think about that, what does it mean for solar and a lot of the solar domestic solar components? There needs to be a decision on that as well, and we've been pushing hard with our member companies. Tom mentioned we're not finished, and we're still not finished, because if we do not get siding and permitting, And we don't have really a clear, coordinated, consistent, little iterative there, but transparent and efficient process. You know, it's something when we look at this, we're we're actually saying that we can do this and keep an eye on environmental regulations, but really streamline uh, a lot of the process that we have. And Emily Fisher is leading that uh, project internally for us through the industry. And that's something you're going to hear from us throughout this year. Uh, We're going to keep at it. We, we had IRA, Tom, I think that we worked on IRA all year long, and that ended up taking us all year long to get it across the finish line. Uh, it does take a while to do big things uh, for any industry, and siding and permitting uh, is definitely one of them. But as I said, as we're looking for that permitting framework and what that actually looks like, uh, if you think about all these investments that I pointed out to you uh, in the infrastructure law and the IRA, both of them combined, if we're not able to actually get transmission from and to facilities like this that are being invested in, those tax credits will be for naught. So we've really got a job to do in making our case uh, to Congress, making our case to outside stakeholders about this what, what this really means for us.
1: Brian noted that electric transportation adoption has rapidly accelerated in a short amount of time. In 2018, there were one million electric vehicles on U.S. roads. Now, EEI projects that there will be 26 million on U.S. roads in 2030 as electric transportation takes hold in communities across the country and residential and corporate customers and local and federal government agencies transition their vehicles and fleets to electric. EEI and our member companies are working closely with stakeholders, including EV charging companies, to help deploy the charging infrastructure across the country.
2: We've done everything to be able to organize the industry, uh, really focusing in on our own investment and actually working with community stakeholders, EV charging companies as well. For companies that are, they're happy to have somebody uh, build that infrastructure for them, uh, we are still the we are still the power that's going to power all of that. And we need to think about how we're partnering and what we want to do in the states. And some companies find that uh, a good model to follow as well. As I mentioned, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, it was the first time that a joint office was created between the Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy. If it shows you how important it is, they see this as a priority in getting that policy right. They have about $20 billion uh, in that joint office uh, to be able to deploy uh, around, this, around the states to be able to get this where it needs to go. And then we started actually, we started with two areas of the, comp- of the country that were a little bit more electric vehicle centric. And then we built that out to start the National Electric Highway Coalition, which covers all 50 states now. So we're now set up with the infrastructure as far as the IOUs are concerned in making sure that we're getting this money out there and we're making sure that we're utilizing all of these opportunities in and around carbon reductions and even carbon reductions in other sectors. And then another thing that we actually focused on was internally we focused on a DEI initiative. That was probably one of the most important things, and I think that uh, it was launched during Pat Vinci-Colon's Chairmanship, that was probably about five years ago. Uh, Really, before people were really talking about DEI, the industry really had embraced it and were really talking about what it really means to be diverse, what it really means to be inclusive, and what what does that look like for us uh, as an industry. And I think that we've done a great job in diversifying our workforce, at the same time doing everything that I talked about, uh, which is not easy. I think the the place that we're in right now, when you think about uh, the opportunities we have, we're in a little bit of a trilemma, uh, right? We've got to keep energy costs down and affordable at the same time, continuing on with the clean energy transition. And at the same time, keep an eye on resiliency and reliability. Uh, So Tom said that that was both really an opportunity for us, but it it actually presents a challenge because we've got to be able to do it all. And that's what our customers expect from us.
1: Emily Fisher, EEI's Executive Vice President of Clean Energy and General counsel, took the stage to discuss clean energy leadership, carpet-free technologies, and the launch of an exciting new initiative.
3: Brian highlighted our industry's amazing clean energy progress and our commitment to delivering resilient clean energy across the economy. Our path toward even greater progress, however, is going to be dependent on new and emerging clean energy technologies. Recent innovative technology developments, including The design and certification for a new small modular reactor and recent breakthrough information about nuclear fusion really underscore how RDD&D efforts can further revolutionize our clean energy landscape. And EEI also continues its work to accelerate the pace of innovation. Last year, we talked about the coming together of EEI, other industry leaders, and environmental leaders to launch the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative. CFTI identifies and advocates for specific policies to drive the acceleration and the commercial availability of new affordable 24-7 clean energy technologies. And CFTI's work continues this year for sure, as does our engagement with the financial community and our investors so that we can all learn to understand what it's going to take to deploy these technologies. And your partnership is certainly essential to us in this work. Building on this work, however, I am proud to announce today that the Edison Foundation this year is launching the Institute for the Energy Transition. IET, as we're going to call it, even if Tom sometimes wishes I would call it something else, um, will work on the demonstration and deployment of key energy technologies, including hydrogen, battery electric storage and long duration energy storage, carbon capture and storage for power generation, and advanced nuclear technologies. IET will focus on understanding the evolving economics and expected future costs of these technologies. But beyond the techno-economics, IET also will focus on identifying solutions for the legal, regulatory, and policy issues that are really gonna make it possible to deploy these technologies when they're commercially available. IET also will provide frequent updates on technology assessments, including significant developments and new demonstration projects. And our goal is to develop materials to help educate key stakeholders, including the public, about these technologies and the impediments to their deployment. While the industry is focused on deploying wind, solar, energy storage, new clean energy technologies, natural gas continues to play a significant and important and evolving role in our energy mix. Natural gas helps accelerate the clean energy transition today by allowing more of our member companies to integrate more renewable energy into this system while ensuring reliability, resilience, and resource adequacy. Last year, the Supreme Court issued its decision in West Virginia versus EPA, which limited but ultimately upheld EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from various sources under the Clean Air Act. As EPA prepares to propose new greenhouse gas regulations for fossil-based generation this year, EEI is advocating for continued responsible use of natural gas uh, that will help us to continue to deploy more renewables reliably and also to support the resilience of the grid in the face of increasingly extreme weather events. EEI also is advocating for compliance flexibilities that will allow us to keep important generating resources on the system while moving to deploy new technologies and reducing emissions. As part of these efforts, EEI supports EPA's continued efforts to regulate methane emissions from the entire natural gas value chain, and we look forward to EPA finalizing those regulations later this year. As part of our clean energy leadership, and as Brian alluded to, EEI members are also committed to ensuring justice and equity are built into the clean energy transition. As part of our commitment to build a clean energy future that benefits all customers in all communities, we are working to understand and address environmental justice and equity issues. EEI is focused on supporting the Biden administration's Justice40 initiative and other efforts to ensure investments in clean energy, electric transportation, and resilience are made in all communities, including underserved communities. We are essential partners in these efforts and are engaging with community leaders and other stakeholders to increase access to jobs and contracting opportunities, as well as access to clean energy technologies, while maintaining our focus on customer affordability.
1: Phil Moeller, EEI's Executive Vice President of the Business Operations Group in Regulatory Affairs, took the stage to discuss transmission and distribution, working with state and federal regulators to achieve our clean energy goals, industry-government partnerships on wildfires and cybersecurity, and more.
4: So when we talk about uh, transmission and the importance of it, Brian alluded to it. With all the clean energy transition that we're aspiring to move forward, if we don't have the wires and, in some cases, the pipes to move it forward, it all goes for not. So what we're actually trying to promote is more of a holistic approach toward transmission, not only in the local projects but also those interregional projects that can bring the resources where they're produced to where they're consumed and, in so doing, uh, emphasize the various attributes of transmission because it's, it's such an enabler, it gives such optionality to our grid as we move forward with different fuel sources, different loads, whatever it might be. But now it also, as Brian alluded to, it's very important that we focus on the siting and permitting reform because it has to be a more efficient, accountable, and, uh, and, and a process that's more predictable given the nature of the investments involved. So uh, we've been working very closely with FERC, where I used to work, on a number of their rulemakings that are focusing on long-term planning, cost allocation, interconnection reform, all very important, again, to create that kind of certainty. Also importantly, we've worked our team with NERC and FERC to come up with a cold weather standard, somewhat in relation to uh, what happened with uh, the storm Uri, but arguably 10 years overdue, and the commission just basically approved it last Thursday to move forward. a lot of details to work out. But again, proactively addressing a threat and so that the generation resources at least have the ability to, to withstand cold weather or harsh weather conditions. Uh, we've, back in 2018, uh, developed a state practice. We formalized it so that people throughout EEI work together, whether it's the regulatory, the legislative, the communicator, communicators to help our member companies uh, deal with the variety of issues that are increasingly more common at the state level. And just last year, we helped over 60 companies, 41 states, over 200 areas, where we could help educate uh, regulators and legislators on the importance of the decisions they make. I emphasize this because all that we've talked about today, all that we'll continue to talk about later today in terms of investments, we are dependent on the economic regulators either at the federal level or the state level to approve those investments. So at EEI, we spent an enormous amount of time building relationships at FERC and in the state commissions and with their staff so that we're a credible source of information as they deal with the very tough decisions that they have to deal with uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, particularly now since a lot of them haven't regulated under the conditions that they're facing presently. Part of this though is emphasizing not only the regulatory compact, we provide service and then get the rates that uh, can compensate our shareholders, but also the value of the regulated business model. The fact that there is certainty with regulators and those who are regulated for the benefit of customers. It's something we have to continually uh, emphasize and we will do so again throughout the year. Briefly on our AHR investments, these are pretty important and Richard will allude to it later on. He and his team have done a lot of work to to break out the AHR component of our CapEx, but it's it's an important part to deal with more extreme weather that we're facing. Um, And and part of our arguments, and, and it's a little tougher now given the environment with particularly state regulators but also at the federal level, is that these investments now pay off in the long term. You pay some now, you prevent outages, it's really worth it. So that's part of our challenge particularly now. But we always point to Florida because the investments that occurred after the hurricanes in the mid-2000s and also recently more at the distribution level, those investments have significantly reduced outages, increased the, or shorted the amount of time that people get their power turned back on. And we can do the economic analysis, the money spent, is worth it in the long term for the economy. It's a pretty quick payoff, so we continue to promote that in front of regulators and we'll continue to do so. On wildfires, first of all, let me tell you, if you're not aware of the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, you should be. It's really an amazing uh, organization that that combines the highest levels of the federal government with the leaders of the electric industry to deal with various threats uh, that face it, whether they're cyber or weather, In this case, wildfires. ESCC has a wildfire working group. CEO has, uh, EEI has a CEO task force specific to wildfires, led by Maria Pope of Portland General. And we work together with the federal government to deal with uh, more proactively mitigating, analyzing, dealing with wildfires. Now, it's not a big deal in New York City, I realize it. But for a Westerner like me, who has seen the impacts of wildfires, it's a really big deal in the West. I want you to know we're being very proactive about it. Regarding the, the securing the energy grid, the overall structure of the ESCC is really important. It's cross-sector coordination. We've been uh, dealing with a variety of threats now, whether it's extreme weather, resource adequacy issues, cyber threats, physical threats, others. The ESCC is a great forum to talk about and deal with these things proactively at EEI. We have been very involved. Uh, Tom goes to all the meetings, and again, our member companies and our CEOs are involved in this. We have a cyber mutual assistance program. It's based a little bit on the storm recovery program that we have. We're we're focusing on the supply chain, uh, specifically on transformers, and also some of the, the equipment on the grid that has cyber aspects to it. Just know that we've been focusing on it. We'll continue to focus on it, And uh, given the recent interest in some physical attacks, know that we're on it working with FERC and NERC proactively.
1: As the briefing wrapped up, Richard McMahon, EEI's Senior Vice President of Energy Delivery and Finance and Chief ESG Officer, discussed financial performance and provided an update on CapEx spending.
5: Obviously, these are very volatile times in the markets, and I think our companies continue to provide steady performance. Looking at the last two years, we've outpaced the markets. And uh, looking at dividends, obviously, almost all of our companies are paying dividends, uh, and most all of them are increasing their dividends. And I think uh, of note, I know we've got a lot of rating agencies here, but I do want to point out the fact that in terms of the credit ratings, this is an industry that's deployed almost 1 trillion, with a T, dollars of capital over the last decade, and yet, our credit ratings remain solid at B plus. So really, really good, I think, news for the industry and, and we're really proud of our member companies and the performance that they're delivering for you all. And now just looking at our CapEx spend, uh, looking at the timeline. Uh, again, this trend that we've seen over the last decade of year over year uh, record levels of CapEx continued again in 2022, reaching almost $155 billion in CapEx. And our forward look shows that that isn't going to abate or it shouldn't abate based on the numbers that we've seen in our projections. Taking a look at the capital allocation, um, I'm going to get to some of the points that Phil raised about adaptation, hardening, and resilience. But the thing that's notable on here is that the investment that's driving the overall CapEx is focused more on T&D. In the past, it was more on generation. Now it's more on t So if you look, t and constitutes almost 53% of our overall CapEx. And of that number, approximately 35% of that 53% is we believe adaptation hardening and resilience tied. So really that effort to make the grid more resilient in the face of cyber challenges, in the face of weather challenges is is really what's helping to drive this number. Talk a little bit about IRA implementation. Brian uh, mentioned uh, and Tom, our leadership on getting that bill through. Uh, but obviously, the devil's in the details. A lot of the, and I know from the calls I've taken from many of you in this room, that there's a lot of questions about uh, the more, not the, well, some of the what, but, but the when. And uh, uh, we've been doing an awful lot on, uh, on implementation of IRA. Our, Mark Agnew here, uh, Eric Gray, and our teams have done a terrific job engaging with Treasury on a variety of issues, but they are sort of in two big buckets. One is on... Uh, the clean energy provisions, which are significant, and then the other big bucket is on uh, the corporate alternative minimum tax, which you know, it is what it is, but we need to grapple with it because, on a market cap basis, if you look at our companies, a little under half are impacted by it. Uh, I'll say a word or two about. I don't want to. I won't go through all enumerate all the issues. You know my number. We can talk privately on them. But um, you know, two of the issues that Brian mentioned, I think, are really at the forefront uh, right now for us. One is on the uh, domestic content requirement for the bonus solar credit. Uh, We need to make sure that that requirement is not too granular. And so if it gets so granular that um, all of the different uh, subcomponents, uh, the polysilicon, the wafers, and so on, if all of those things are classified as components, then it'll be really, really difficult to get to that domestic content threshold, even for companies that manufacture here. So we're really working on trying to get a reasonable level of, uh, of granularity so that those things uh, and other pieces that we rely on imports for will continue to be considered subcomponents under the rule and not components. And also we're looking at reasonable rules for the developers as well so that it's not too granular. On the uh, the hydrogen credit, I'll mention that this is the production tax credit, the green production tax credit for hydrogen. On that one, the issue is really around the matching. So the, the, the electricity inputs, the renewable electricity inputs that are matched to the electrolyzers and the supply for the electrolyzers, we believe that should be done on an annual basis. And that allows for some flexibility, that allows for very high capacity factors for those electrolyzers, which obviously, the off-takers, fertilizer companies, transportation companies, others, and even us in some cases, need that reliable, sustainable supply that's available at a high capacity factor. If you go hourly, that really breaks down the ability to do uh, to, to build and invest in these plants on a cost-effective basis. So we're working through those issues right now. There's a lot of details. Uh, those two particular issues are issues that are beyond the Treasury. There are also other parts of the administration, as Brian said, that are dealing with them. But we're we're very very deep involved. Say a word a little bit about the uh, the SEC ESG related um, notices. There have been really two last year. One was on climate disclosure, and the other one was on cyber governance and disclosure. Also, we anticipate uh, middle of next middle of this year, probably to end of the spring, a rule on human capital management coming. So that'll really f- Cover the EDS the and the G. Uh, on the climate rule, I think first, your partnership has been invaluable in that. You've helped us create an ESG template, give us leadership in that area, and that's enabled us to really work with the SEC as an authoritative source because this is new to us. We've been doing this for a long time. So um, we're looking for essentially rules that focus more on Reg SK, not Reg SX. So we really thought a lot of those uh, aspects of the proposed rule to dealt with. changing materiality threshold for 1%, zip code level disclosure, uh, a lot of changes to the audited financial statement in the 10K, we didn't like those ideas. But we did think that uh, it made sense for everybody to be reporting something around climate and we feel like doing it through the Reg SK proposal is a good way to do it. On the uh, cyber governance proposal, uh, we did uh, tell SEC that we thought that it made a lot of sense and uh, you as investors you want to know if there's a material cyber event, right? And on the other hand, the rule they proposed said, we want to hear about material, we want to hear about immaterial, and we want to hear about everything in between. And we thought that was a little bit much. Obviously, we want the rule, uh, the final rule written so that it respects uh, national security concerns. We want it to respect, obviously, ensure that the issuer companies that are reporting these events are there protected as well. So we've had a lot of very productive dialogue with SEC around this and I think the final rule, which we anticipate probably around the April timeframe will be something reasonable, but will also provide us good guidance so that if a material event happens, we can inform investors through AKs and so on.
0: But I hope what you've heard from everybody here today is that you know the electric companies of our country here are the catalyst for delivering clean energy technologies and a clean energy economy as affordably and reliably as possible. And, um, you know, we are also the best partners, I think, to uh, reach all customers and all communities in a way that they can access clean, reliable energy. I think the key to our success is and always has been our amazing workforce. They are delivering electricity to hundreds of millions of people every day, both in clear skies and in emergency responses. And believe me, those latter emergency responses are very, very challenging. So I think that uh, we are very, very proud to have a diverse workforce that is totally focused on safety and on serving our communities. So I am very, very proud of all that we've achieved on behalf of our customers through the Power By Association. We really believe that in our industry, at our board, our CEOs, et cetera. And we all work closely together and have the tremendous record of success. And uh, for that reason, EEI represents that power by association. And I think for that reason, I think that the future of our energy industry is very, very bright. So our mission is very exciting, I think. Uh, We are in a uh, situation where we are seizing the moment to accelerate the clean energy transition and transformation. And I think in doing that, it will yield tremendous benefits and a very, very exciting future for our customers, our communities, and our nation
1: that's our show for today thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner smarter stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve you can subscribe to our podcast on spotify itunes podbeam or wherever you get your podcasts just search electric perspectives i'm your host brian real thanks for listening